Today I'll be reading the June 2023 Opinion of the Court in Yigazarian v. Smogin. Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kagan, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson joined. Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Thomas joined and in which Justice Gorsuch joined as to Part 1. Respondent Vitaly Smogin holds a multi-million dollar California judgment against petitioner Ashot Yigazarian, who lives in California. Smogin, who resides in Russia, filed suit in the Central District of California, alleging that Yigazarian, with the assistance of petitioner CMB Monaco, engaged in a pattern of criminal activity, predominantly in and targeted at California, to prevent him from collecting on his California judgment in violation of the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. The district court dismissed the complaint after concluding that Smoggin had failed to allege a domestic injury, as required by RJR Nabisco, Inc., the European Community, 2016. The Ninth Circuit reversed, concluding that Smoggin had alleged a domestic injury. This court agrees with the Ninth Circuit. Part 1 Section A The essential facts as alleged by Smogin are as follows. From 2003 to 2009, Yigazarian committed fraud against Smogin, stealing his shares in a joint real estate venture in Moscow. To avoid a Russian criminal indictment for that fraud, Yigazarian fled to a mansion in Beverly Hills in 2010, where he has lived ever since. In 2014, Smogin, who lives in Russia, won an arbitration award in London against Yigazarian for the misappropriation of real estate investment, or the London Award. Yigazarian refused to pay that award, which is over $84 million. Seeking to collect, Smogin filed an enforcement action in the Central District of California to confirm and enforce the London Award under the Convention of the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. The district court issued a temporary protective order followed by a preliminary injunction freezing Yigazarian's California assets. In his application for injunctive relief, Smogin informed the district court that Yigazarian had been granted a substantial arbitration award in an unrelated proceeding involving Yigazarian and yet another Russian businessman, Suleiman Karamov, or the Karamov Award. At the time, no funds had yet been paid to Yigazarian in satisfaction of that award, but Smogin was concerned that when they were paid, Yigazarian would take steps to transfer the money out of Smogin's reach. Smogin's concerns were justified. In May 2015, Yigazarian received a $198 million settlement in satisfaction of the Karamov Award. To avoid the district court's asset freeze, Yigazarian accepted the money through the London office of an American law firm headquartered in Los Angeles. Yigazarian then created a complex web of offshore entities to conceal the funds, and ultimately transferred the funds to a bank account with petitioner CMB Monaco. Yigazarian also directed those in his inner circle 
to file fraudulent claims against him in foreign jurisdictions, which he would not oppose in an attempt to obtain sham judgments that would encumber the $198 million, thereby blocking Smoggin's access to it. Around the same time, Yigazarian was hiding his assets in the United States through a system of shell companies owned by family members. This included a Nevada company which was owned by his brother and created for the purpose of sheltering Yigazarian's U.S. assets from his creditors, including Smoggin. Smoggin did not learn about the $198 million settlement, Yigazarian's efforts to hide it, or the U.S. shell companies until February 2016 when Smoggin was granted leave to intervene in Yigazarian's California divorce proceedings. The next month, the California District Court in the London Award Enforcement Action granted Smoggin's motion for summary judgment on his petition for confirmation of the award and entered judgment against Yigazarian for $92 million, including interest. The court also issued several post-judgment orders barring Yigazarian and those acting at his direction from preventing collection on the judgment. For failing to comply with those orders, the district court subsequently found Yugazarian in contempt of court. To avoid having to comply with the contempt order, however, Yugazarian falsely claimed he was too ill and submitted a forged doctor's note to the district court. When Smoggin notified Yigazarian that he would be seeking to depose the doctor in question, who resides in California, Yigazarian used intimidation, threats, or corrupt persuasion to get the doctor to avoid service of the subpoena. Section B. At issue here is a civil RICO suit that Smoggin brought in 2020 based on the allegations just described. RICO provides a private right of action to any person injured in his business or property by reason of a violation of RICO's substantive provisions. Invoking that cause of action, Smoggin sued Yigazarian and CMB Bank, the two petitioners here, as well as 10 other defendants in the Central District of California. The complaint asserts two claims against each a substantive RICO violation, and a RICO conspiracy claim. The thrust of Smoggin's allegations is that the defendants worked together under Yigazarian's direction to frustrate Smoggin's collection on the California judgment through a pattern of wire fraud and other RICO predicate racketeering acts, including witness tampering and obstruction of justice. For these violations, Smoggin seeks not only actual damages, no less than $130 million, but also attorney's fees and trouble damages as authorized under RICO. The district court dismissed the complaint on the ground that Smoggin had failed to adequately plead a domestic injury, as required by this court's decision in RJR Nabisco. The district court placed great weight on the fact that Smoggin is a resident and citizen of Russia and therefore experiences the loss from his inability to collect on his judgment in Russia. The Ninth Circuit reversed. 
it rejected petitioner's invitation to follow the domestic injury approach of the Seventh Circuit, which has adopted a rigid residency-based test for domestic injuries involving intangible property, such as a judgment. Under the Seventh Circuit's rule, which locates an injury to intangible property at the plaintiff's residence, Smoggin could not allege a domestic injury because he resides in Russia. The Ninth Circuit instead adopted a context-specific approach to the domestic injury inquiry, which it found consistent with the approaches of the Second and Third Circuits. Applying that approach, the Ninth Circuit concluded that Smoggin had pleaded a domestic injury because he had alleged that his efforts to execute on a California judgment in California against a California resident were foiled by a pattern of racketeering activity that largely occurred in, or was targeted at, California, and was designed to subvert enforcement of the judgment in California. This court granted certiorari to resolve the circuit split. Because a context-specific inquiry is most consistent with this court's decision in RJR Nabisco, and because the context here makes clear Smoggin has alleged a domestic injury, the court affirms. Part 2. Section A. The domestic injury requirement for private civil RICO suits stems from this court's decision in RJR Nabisco. There, the question before the court was whether RICO applies extraterritorially. To answer that question, the court employed the presumption against extraterritoriality, which represents a canon of construction or a presumption about a statute's meaning rather than a limit upon Congress's power to legislate. The presumption provides that absent clearly expressed congressional intent to the contrary, federal laws will be construed to have only domestic application. Dual rationales support the presumption against extraterritoriality. On the one hand, it reflects concerns of international comity insofar as it serves to protect against unintended clashes between our laws and those of other nations, which could result in international discord. On the other hand, the presumption is informed by the common-sense notion that Congress generally legislates with domestic concerns in mind. In fact, consistent application of the presumption preserves a stable background against which Congress can legislate with predictable effects. R.J.R. Nabisco distilled the presumption against extraterritoriality in two steps. The first asks whether the statute gives a clear affirmative indication that it applies extraterritorially. If the answer is yes, then the presumption is rebutted, obviating any need to proceed to step two. If the presumption is not rebutted, however, then step two asks whether the case involves a domestic application of the statute, which is assessed by looking to the statute's focus. Applying this framework, the court assessed the extraterritoriality of two of RICO's substantive provisions, and as relevant here, its private cause of action. As to the substantive provisions, the court held at step one 
that they apply extraterritorially to the same extent that RICO's predicates do, making it unnecessary to proceed to step two. Regarding RICO's private right of action, however, the court's conclusion was different. The court determined that Section 1964C does not overcome the presumption at Step 1 because there is no clear indication that Congress intended to create a private right of action for injuries suffered outside of the United States. If anything, the court reasoned, by cabining the private cause of action to injuries to business or property, Congress signaled that the civil remedy is not coextensive with Section 1962's substantive prohibitions. Accordingly, in reference to Step 2, the court held that a private RICO plaintiff must allege and prove a domestic injury to its business or property. In announcing this domestic injury requirement, the court did not have occasion to explain what constitutes a domestic injury, because the plaintiffs in RJR Nabisco had stipulated that they were not seeking redress for domestic injuries. The question now before the court is whether Smoggin has alleged a domestic injury. Section B. The parties advance competing approaches to the domestic injury inquiry. Petitioners urge the court to adopt a bright-line rule akin to the Seventh Circuit's that locates a plaintiff's injury at the plaintiff's residence. Petitioners advance two different versions of this rule. As their primary position, petitioners argue that any injury cognizable under Section 1964C is necessarily suffered at the plaintiff's residence because the private cause of action remedies only economic injuries, and a plaintiff necessarily suffers that injury at its residence, where the economic injury is felt. In the alternative, petitioners argue that at least when the alleged injury involves intangible property, such as the judgment here, relevant common law principles locate the intangible property at the plaintiff's place of residence, such that the injury is also located there. On either version of petitioner's rule, Smogin cannot allege a domestic injury because he lives in Russia. Smoggin, in contrast, defends a contextual approach that considers all case-specific facts bearing on where the injury arises, not just where it is felt. In the context of this suit, Smoggin argues that he has stated a domestic injury because he has alleged that he was injured in his ability to enforce a California judgment against a California resident, through racketeering acts that were largely designed and carried out in California and were targeted at California. Section C. The court agrees with Smoggin and the Ninth Circuit that determining whether a plaintiff has alleged a domestic injury for purposes of RICO is a context-specific inquiry that turns largely on the particular facts alleged in a complaint. Specifically, courts should look to the circumstances surrounding the alleged injury to assess whether it arose in the United States. In this suit, that means looking to the nature of the alleged injury, the racketeering activity that directly caused it, and the injurious aims and effects of that activity.
This approach to the domestic injury requirement is most consistent with RJR Nabisco. There, the court clarified that its domestic injury requirement does not mean that foreign plaintiffs may not sue under RICO. Similarly, the court explained that the application of the domestic injury rule in any given case will not always be self-evident, as disputes may arise as to whether a particular alleged injury is foreign or domestic. These remarks point toward a case-specific inquiry that considers the particular facts surrounding the alleged injury. Petitioner's bright-line rule, in contrast, dispenses with any such subtlety. It makes the location of the plaintiff's residence determinative, thus barring all foreign plaintiffs exactly as RJR Nabisco said it was not doing. A contextual approach to the domestic injury requirement also better reflects the requirement's origin in Step 2 of the extraterritoriality framework, which assesses whether there is a domestic application of a statute by looking to the statute's focus. RJR Nabisco implied that the focus of Section 1964C is injuries in business or property by reason of a violation of RICO's substantive provisions. This focus makes sense because, in the context of RICO, the compensable injury necessarily is the harm caused by predicate acts sufficiently related to constitute a pattern, for the essence of the violation is the commission of those acts in connection with the conduct of an enterprise. So understood, Section 1964C's focus is on the injury, not in isolation, but as the product of racketeering activity. Thus, in assessing whether there is a domestic injury, courts should engage in a case-specific analysis that looks to the circumstances surrounding the injury. If those circumstances sufficiently ground the injury in the United States— such that it is clear the injury arose domestically, then the plaintiff has alleged a domestic injury. Because of the contextual nature of the inquiry, no set of factors can capture the relevant considerations for all cases. RICO covers a wide range of predicate acts and is notoriously expansive in scope. Thus, depending on the allegations, what is relevant in one case to assessing where the injury arose may not be pertinent in another. While a bright-line rule would no doubt be easier to apply, fealty to the statute's focus requires a more nuanced approach. Section D. This suit illustrates well why the domestic injury inquiry must account for the facts of the case rather than rely on a residency-based rule. While it may be true, in some sense, that Smoggin has felt his economic injury in Russia, focusing solely on that fact would miss central features of the alleged injury. Zooming out, the circumstances surrounding Smoggin's injury make clear it arose in the United States. Smoggin alleges that he has been injured in his ability to collect his massive judgment. Much of the alleged racketeering activity that caused the injury occurred in the United States. 
Yigazarian took domestic actions to avoid collection, including allegedly creating U.S. shell companies to hide his U.S. assets, submitting a forged doctor's note to a California district court, and intimidating a U.S.-based witness. It is true that other components of the scheme occurred abroad. As Smoggin alleges, however, even those wrongful acts and plans were devised, initiated, and carried out through acts and communications initiated in and directed towards Los Angeles County, California, with the central purpose of frustrating enforcement of the California judgment. Further, the injurious effects of the racketeering activity largely manifested in California. Smoggin obtained a judgment in California because that is where Yezagarian lives and where Smoggin had thus hoped to collect. The rights that the California judgment provides to Smoggin exist only in California, including the right to obtain post-judgment discovery, the right to seize assets in California, and the right to seek other appropriate relief from the California District Court. The alleged RICO scheme thwarted those rights, thereby undercutting the orders of the California District Court and Smoggin's efforts to collect on Yigazarian's assets in California. In sum, Smoggin's interests in his California judgment against Yigazarian, a California resident, were directly injured by racketeering activity, either taken in California or directed from California, with the aim and effect of subverting Smoggin's rights to execute on that judgment in California. On the court's contextual approach, those allegations suffice to state a domestic injury in this suit. Part 3 Petitioners argue that a contextual approach is inconsistent with certain common law principles, which instead favor their bright-line rule. According to petitioners, because Smoggin has alleged an economic injury or an injury in intangible property, courts should look to common law principles governing the suits of such injuries when determining whether those injuries are foreign or domestic. Specifically as to economic injuries, petitioners point to the Restatement of Conflict of Laws, 1934, from which they discern the principle that a fraud plaintiff suffers an economic loss at the plaintiff's domicile. As to intangible injuries, petitioners further rely on the principle of mobilia sequentur personam, which they claim generally locates intangible property at the domicile of its owners. Both principles, they argue, locate Smoggin's alleged injury at his residence. Petitioners fall short, however, when explaining the relevance of these principles. They do not clearly explain why choice-of-law principles are germane here, let alone why the first restatement dictates those principles. Meanwhile, it is far from clear that petitioners' gloss on the principle of mobilia sequentur personam was as well-established or as wide-sweeping as petitioners take it to be, in light of the many twists and turns in the doctrine across a range of contexts. In short, at the time of Rico's enactment, 
both principles were hardly settled at common law. The core problem with petitioners' approach is that it is unmoored from the presumption against extraterritoriality. While legal fictions regarding the situs of economic injuries and intangible property have their justifications in other areas of law, those justifications do not necessarily translate to the presumption against extraterritoriality, with its distinctive concerns for comity and discerning congressional meaning. Indeed, it is because petitioners' view invokes these fictions that it generates results so counter to comity and so far afield from any reasonable interpretation of what qualifies as a domestic application of Section 1964C. On petitioners' primary view, a business owner who resides abroad but owns a brick-and-mortar business in the United States cannot bring a Section 1964C suit even if an American RICO organization burns down her storefront. Perhaps aware of how odd this seems, petitioners offer a fallback rule for intangible property. That rule fares no better. It provides that if racketeering activity targets the intangible business interests of two U.S. businesses, one owned by a U.S. resident and one owned by someone living abroad, only the former business owner can bring a Section 1964C suit. There is no evidence Congress intended to impose such a double standard, especially because doing so runs its own risks of generating international discord. These implausible consequences are strong evidence that petitioners have gone astray in assessing the focus of Section 1964C and thus the meaning of domestic injury as contemplated by RJR Nabisco. Finally, petitioners, as well as the dissent, argue that a contextual approach is unworkable because it does not provide a bright-line rule. An approach is not unworkable, however, merely because it directs courts to consider the case-specific circumstances surrounding an injury when assessing where it arises. While the ease with which petitioner's bright-line rule can be applied gives it some surface appeal, a look beneath the surface quickly reveals that the test is inconsistent with RJR Nabisco, the presumption against extraterritoriality, and the thrust of Section 1964C itself. Concerns about a fact-intensive test cannot displace congressional policy choices where a more nuanced test is true to the statute's meaning. A plaintiff has alleged a domestic injury for purposes of Section 1964C when the circumstances surrounding the injury indicate it arose in the United States. Smoggin alleges that he was injured in California because his ability to enforce a California judgment in California against a California resident was impaired by racketeering activity that largely occurred in, or was directed from, and targeted at, California. Those allegations state a domestic injury. The judgment of the Ninth Circuit is affirmed, and the cases are remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. 
We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.